Today's podcast is brought to you by IQ Air, the air quality experts behind the Perfect 16, the number one rated whole house air purifier. It fits seamlessly into your HVAC system using four advanced microfiber filters arranged in a double V shape. The Perfect 16 features one of the lowest pressure drops in a whole house HVAC air purifier on the market. This protects your investment in clean air and preserves HVAC performance by reducing strain on your HVAC system components and lowering your energy costs. We have the Perfect 16 filtration system in our office and it's absolutely fantastic. There was a noticeable difference in air quality from the moment we had it installed. Get proven purified performance for the perfect price. Go to www.iqair.com forward slash podcast or call 800-500-4AIR. That's iqair.com forward slash podcast or 800-500-4247. IQ Air. First in air quality. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin here, as always, with Miguel. Hey, everyone. Notice I didn't call you sidekick today. I can be a sidekick. No, I'm no sidekick. I also have the great good fortune to be here with Ruchika Modi with PAL, Architecture and Urban Design in New York. Ruchika, please say hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and could you uh, give us give our audience a little introduction to who you are and um, what PAL is doing? Absolutely. So, by the way, um, call me Ruchi. That's what I typically go by. Okay, we'll do. And so, I work at Powell. I'm an associate partner and the studio director. Our office is currently just in New York, but shortly, I think starting next summer, we have an office in Berkeley, California as well. Oh, exciting. And, mm-hmm, yeah, Vishan, our founder, is going to Berkeley to become the dean of the architecture school there. Oh, my goodness. Congrats to him. Yeah, he. I should interject briefly. He's the reason we're speaking. He spoke in Austin. That's right. So POW, I should say, uh, is an acronym. It stands for Practice for Architecture and Urbanism. Mm-hmm. And if I were to describe what we do in one sentence, it is this. POW designs lasting architecture and humanist urbanism to advance the city of the future. And that is truly at the at the core of everything that happens in this office. And you, if, let's talk a little bit about Ruchi. So, how did you end up uh, working for Pal, or has it have you always been there? Well, I mean, I've sort of so we're four years old. In fact, we just had our four-year birthday just last month. Uh, so we're a new firm, and I've been here pretty much, you know, from the beginning. I joined POW, I think, two months into its uh, inception. And uh, Vishal and I have known each other for a while, though. Uh, we taught together at Columbia, the university in the department. Mm. Um, I graduated from there, so I'm alumni. And I was teaching, co-teaching there with an ex-professor and current uh, employer, Lori Hawkinson. And we ended up teaching a joint studio with Vishan back in 2010. And I've known Vishan since then. 
so we sort of kept in touch and you know managed to sort of remain in contact since then and a couple of years no not a couple i guess it was five years ago four years ago uh, vishan asked me to co-teach a studio with him at columbia so it was during that stint that he had just formed pow and sort of halfway through the semester he said you got to quit what you're doing and come work for me um, <laughs> we talked about it and it, the conversation you know lasted about a month and by the end of it i was like well yeah of course and so i've been here ever since congrats and happy birthday happy belated birthday thank to you, you all. thank yeah, you yeah we we just had our 10-year birthday, um, and it goes fast. It does and go fast. It does. Yeah, one of the, there's many synergies um, between where we have taken the conversation here on the Building Science Podcast and where POW is, which is one of the reasons we wanted to speak to you. And specifically, uh, you, as you probably know, building science is system theory applied to buildings. And building science generally, you're typically is the physical sciences applied to buildings, you know, the system theory of um, the architectural, structural, mechanical, uh, you know, massing, orientation, aperture, all the control layers, all those physical sciences, they interact. Uh, they're one giant interconnected system. And that is where you building science usually focuses. Instead, what we have realized, and I'm an engineer, is that technology is so not the constraint that I work with. The constraint is more like societal apathy or, or lack of awareness of the available upside. And those limitations are really cultural and uh, societal right? and psychological, frankly. And that, that was what I found so exciting hearing Vishan speak was recognizing that the real power in our world today is is us, is human beings, and the fact that we care about our lives, we care about what we do with our lives. And what can we do as a society to, to make that work better? And one of the most exciting, I think, I think often overlooked areas is to recognize that how we interact socially, which is largely mediated by the architecture of cities, is that the architecture of cities is actually a technology that can promote human thriving in that sense. It can promote social cohesion. One of the questions I want to I understand is uh, why is it that now might be a really important time to rethink cities generally? That's a really, really good question. And I would say now is most certainly a good time, but 10 years back would have been equally good. <laughs> it just point. has gotten to a point, it's gotten to a point where the, condition, the conditions are dire. Mm -hmm. And you look at, you know, you start off looking at just the big challenges, the the big daunting challenges that we face today, whether that's climate change, you know, stored social mobility, you know, exponential technological dislocations, grossly substandard infrastructure, all of these are the pressing issues of, of our times and they cannot be ignored. There is we don't we don't have that luxury. Right. We would argue that all of these issues are actually spatial in nature and that they play out in the space of the city. And the city is where we will confront and reconcile these challenges. Mm -hmm. So yes, the architecture of the city is 
very much part of the solution, it's part of the problem, and it has to be part of the solution. You know, you look at the world population, uh, it's expected to increase by 2 billion persons in the next 30 years. So we're going to go from roughly 7.7 .7 billion today to 9.7 billion. Where are we going to put ourselves? <laughs> cities. Cities is where we have to put ourselves. Yes. And the, projection, the projection is that 70% of us will be living in cities. It's where we work and it's where we increasingly live. And that's where we will thrive or not. And, you know, if billions of us choose the alternative, we will choke the planet. That, that just is not sustainable. The city is the last and best hope for humanity. And as architects and planners, we are very directly involved with and have to share the stewardship of this hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can hear it. There's there's something like spatial justice involved here. You know, we talk about environmental justice and social justice, but also space. How do we make space available for everyone in our cities? Well, that's, that is the million dollar question. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to, it comes down to some pretty tangible, quantifiable ways, you know, in, in which to do that. I mean, what are the world that we're trying to create? What are the cities that we should be designing? I would say that, you know, at the very minimum, we need the cities to be dense enough to support rapid mass transit. Mm -hmm. And that's approximately 30 units per acre, which, you know, in case it starts to sound scary, is not that bad. It's, I'm going to speak to New York because, you know, I'm Please. Really yeah, put that in context, 30 units per acre. Mm -hmm. So 30 units per acre is the same as most of Brooklyn. It's Crown Heights, it's parts of East New York, East mm -hmm. Flatbush, Bensonhurst, and, and some of Queens like Astoria, Cypress Hills, um, Jamaica. And actually I looked this up for Austin, and I don't know Austin, I was there briefly for half a day. Hmm. But it's your MF3 and MF4 zoning districts. Oh, really? Those are, those are actually a little over 30 units per acre. And I tried to find what neighborhoods those applied to, and it wasn't very easy. But I think the West Campus, for instance, right. is um, M4. Uh, South Clarksville is M4. So, I mean, you have some of these neighborhoods in your own backyard and, you know, I don't want people to get scary images of Hudson Yards in Manhattan and think that that's what we're promoting. We're not. We're just promoting, like, enough density that it can support rapid mass transportation. Mm -hmm. It can support mixed use, you know, it should be mixed use enough so that most of our daily needs can be met within walking distance. Right. It should be inclusive enough that it generates the right kind of social friction you know, where good things happen. And there's a whole story behind this that I can get into later. Uh, but most most importantly, this is, this is, I should preface this, most importantly, the, our cities need to be different. They need to be, they need to be done delightful. They need to be magnetic enough to hold a distinctive appeal to attract a new green, you know, urbanite population. Right. So the reason people are the reason people are choosing to live in suburbs over cities is, is varied, right? I mean, part of it is affordability, part of it is just preference. They don't want to live in, 
in the squalor or the you know the conditions that most cities provide. And these are all solvable problems. Right. So we shouldn't throw the baby out of the bathwater. We can't say cities aren't working today, so let's move to suburbs because we know for a fact that there's the solution does not lie there. We just have to create better cities. Yeah. Yeah, I think also there's just an inertia or a you know a familiarity with suburbs and people don't even think about it. Well, you know, that's actually not that far back. Suburbs yeah. are a you know late 20th century phenomenon. They basically started with the 1956 National Interstate and Defense Act, yeah. where you know, the, the investment in highways and the sort of uh, disbanding of cities was very intentional. And it created a pattern of community development in America, which was, it was fundamentally altered and based on the automobile. And yeah. that's really, you know, that gave rise to what I consider our nemesis, the strip mall and the monocultures of suburban subdivision. It's basically the anti-city. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the end game scenario. It's interesting. I think most people would be surprised to think of a suburb as a technology or a city as a technology. But if you go to good old Wikipedia, a technology, it, here's the definition there. It says technology is the sum of techniques, skills, methods, and processes used in the production of goods or services, or here's the one, in the accomplishment of objectives. So we have an objective to live on this planet. I mean, clearly that's our implicit objective. And we have tried the suburban technology and it's, it's sort of failing us, right? I would love for us to admit it, like, you know, VHS versus beta or uh, <laughs> that, that dates me. You can tell how old I am from that one. But, you know, like just admit it that th this, this experiment with the suburbs has not led to the, the big picture societal and planetary outcomes that we were hoping for. Well, it's true. I mean, suburbs were... Uh created, you know, for a very intentional purpose, but it did leave the city sort of unattended, mm -hmm. and it did leave the, the effort and the attention and the focus sort of basically that needs to be put into making cities more functional just hasn't happened as much as it needs to. Yeah, and it's... Uh, but, but I just cannot get behind the fact that suburb would ever be a, a sustainable alternative. If you look at just... You know, we're talking about climate change. You look at carbon, carbon emissions per household. Absolutely. For a suburban home, it's eight, it's, for a suburban home, it's twice as much than for an urban home. Mm -hmm. So suburban homes is about 8.5 tons. For urban homes, it's 4.2 tons. So, I mean, there's just in, indisputable facts out there that transit-rich cities with green buildings just have a much lower carbon footprint per person. And that is the direction that we have to take. We have no choice. Yeah, here, here. I mean, I, so it reminds me also of, of social justice and social cohesion. I mean, the, the cities is actually a rich, dense mixing pot, whereas the suburbs are much more isolated. And as a strategy for happiness, you know, human strategy for happiness, that's what a suburb is in some sense. It's it's not working, right? We try to isolate ourselves away in these little kind of stone or wooden boxes, and we get into these metal pods called our cars, you know, and we don't really interact with our neighbors very often or very deeply. 
And we think, oh, it's going to lead to some sort of better experience for me. I don't have to hassle with my neighbor. But ultimately, we're, we're highly social beings, <laughs> and it, it doesn't really help us out. You see the, you see the, the fallout from that kind of model nowadays. You know, emotions are heightened. That kind of segregation yeah. and that kind of non-inclusive living environment where people live in their bubbles and they, you know, live in these monocultures in the suburb, they get into their metal bubble and they drive to work and then they get back in there and they drive back and there's very little, yeah. there's very little kind of, you know, communication and interaction with people that are not exactly like you. Yeah. So there's actually a really interesting um, little anecdote that talks about just this. Cool. That I'd go into. So there, he he referred to it as the lure of cities. So there's I'm going to talk about the lure of cities put forth by the Greek city planner Doxiadis, and this is by way of Charles Correa's book The New Landscape. Mm-hmm. So he said, imagine a village of 250 red dots and one blue dot. We don't know what the blue dot is. Is that Einstein? Is that the village idiot? Who knows? We don't know. We just know that he or she is different. Next, imagine a town of a thousand people. There are, at this point, four or five blue dots floating around the sea of red ones. Next, a, ta- a town of 25,000 people. Goodness, two blue people meet for the first time. And, yeah, no, that's an occasion to celebrate. They've probably been and, blue people but didn't want to tell anyone. <laughs> well, they probably felt blue and tried to hide it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And couldn't understand why things felt so wrong. And so finally you have a town of 10,000 inhabitants with several colonies of blue people. And on the fringes of these colonies, some of the red dots are starting to turn purple. And so that's what I would argue that cities are all about. It's about different people meeting, communicating, challenging, and changing one another. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where ideas incubate. And this is not going to happen if you live in a suburban house, you know, surrounded by your yard and, you know, very little interaction. So there's considerable data out there that says density breeds innovation. Yep. If you consider two cities, one that houses X number of jobs per square mile and another that houses twice as many jobs per square mile, there's data supporting the fact that the second city has 20% more habits per capita. And, you know, thinking about the red dot, blue dot metaphor, that, that was tremendous. Uh, I also know that it doesn't have to mean red state, blue state. It's just a coincidence. No, no, no. This, but, this, predates, this, this, is, this predates red and blue states. This is, you know, Greek planner. Yeah. <laughs> you could use any color. Well, I, and in fact, it doesn't be just two colors. It could be, you know, I, I would say that there's all the colors in the rainbow. And the more they commingle and the more they interact and uh, affect one another, the better we would all be. Here, here, you know, and and just to be fair, I also think that it doesn't it doesn't not need to be about red state, blue state politics. I mean, there is something like that. I mean, I'm in Texas here, and I'm in a very blue city. In generally speaking, a very red state. I mean, I think it might be yeah. moving toward more purple. But most, and, and I meet lots of people. I mean, in my line of work, I meet lots of people from 
all over the spectrum. And it's, sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it's overt. They're stating their political views. And it, it seems generally, and this is just a data point, like as an engineer, that the more isolated people are, the more they live in rural areas or uh, low population density areas, the more they're kind of uh, conservative. And, you know, in my opinion, sort of just living with their own thoughts, their own value preference system. And that's a little dangerous to go to go out here politically like that. But it's my experience that uh, the more you're around people, the more, as you say, the more you're challenged to, you know, look the other person in the eye and say, huh, that person's right here in the room with me and they have a completely different perception of, of reality and of value preference systems generally. Precisely. You know, I would argue that where we are today, globally, with the sort of heightened emotions and the yeah. knee-jerk sort of reactions to, you know, whether it's whether it plays out in the democratic elections or otherwise, uh, a lot of it, I would say, is arising out of this unfamiliarity with the other. Yeah. You know, it's this the whole idea of the other is basically what's created this issue. And of course, the fact that you know there's this heightened anxiety is because people can't afford their lives, and that again goes back to creating you know good cities. But definitely, this idea of like isolation and living in a bubble has definitely created huge social, you know, political issues mm-hmm. for us. And it creates a distortion for us that that we don't notice. Back to that core issue, you know, I would like to explore where and how we as a, a race of living beings are going to house ourselves in the future. And really to get at it, maybe we could start by looking at uh, the sort of the key differences between pre and post industrial cities. Um, you have any comments on that? I know it's a bit of a oddball question. No, I think it makes sense uh, because it's a very relevant difference. And it's one that we kind of face every day as we design in our cities. You know, as, as architects and urban planners, we really we really see this issue cropping up. So, you know, most of our cities, most of the cities that we are operating in, living in, were built during pre-industrial times, and they responded to what we would refer to as pre-industrial constraints, which were, you know, if I were to list them, Primarily, I would say there was masonry and timber construction, mm-hmm. which has limitations, which of course influences the you know geometries that we work with. The row house typology, which also, by the way, was informed by the construction technology of the time. You know, the typical row house with an NYC is 20 to 25 feet, which is how far a timber beam can span efficiently. Interesting. And lastly, horse-drawn carriages, right? I mean, we, we were basically designing our streets and our sort of cities around these technologies. And these factors changed drastically with the Industrial Revolution. So we now had modern conveniences, such as the elevator, the internal combustion engine, which changed everything, yeah. and we had automobiles and buses, and uh, high-rise steam construction, extremely different. And so you're working now with these new post-industrial blocks, and you're trying to shoehorn them into. I'm sorry, you're working with pre uh, pre-industrial blocks, and you're trying to shoehorn post-industrial uses. Into. Right. And obviously, with the drastic growth in population, 
which by the way, you know, in about the 1800s, our global population was somewhere a little over 900 million. And as I, as I said earlier, now it's 7.7 billion. Wow. So Incredible. We're at, yeah, we're looking at fabric that was designed at a time that was very, very different, with very different uh, priorities, with very different technologies. And we're trying to basically use that same fabric um, to fit, you know, to fit all of us in at this moment. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can feel it. Like, keep in mind, again, I'm the engineer, and I can imagine this, this sort of sense that you think of a person as a machine, like, you know, like I can design a air distribution system for a home. Okay, then I can design uh, a human distribution system for a city or something like that. But people are people, right? They're not just these little units. We can just house them anywhere and it'll be... Um, you know, cost neutral or impact neutral. It really, there's a social mixing that needs to be understood to design a really functional city. Well, you have to look at just what humans need to need to sort of live and thrive. You know, there are timeless factors that we all still adhere to. You know, we're bipeds, all of us, yeah. for the most part. Mm -hmm. We need to walk. You know, we need light and air. All of us, we can't live without it. Um, we need protection from the elements. You know, we're all subject to gravity. I mean, they're just like some timeless factors that we have to always uh, consider. And, you know, of course, there's newer information age factors that change. But, you know, for instance, technology, you know, you're looking at AVs now. You're looking at the advent of autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Um, specifically talking about the way that architectural sort of ideas are changing, programming ideas are changing. Now you're seeing a very sort of mixed type of programming. By programming, I mean the use of the space. Right. So it's how you know. So work and play and live are all starting to blur. And you know, we've sort of returned to this idea of horizontality. Uh, our buildings are becoming lower and you know, um, sort of more spread out than the horizontal footprint. Than you know, like the verticality has been sort of left behind a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so, when you look at all of these factors together, uh, they don't really work that well with the pre-industrial city grids and sort of making it all come together has been sort of the issue and the question is if not if that's not working then what do we do next yeah and i think what we do next is is critical and it does involve sort of stepping back and looking at the big picture and understanding where we want to go as people and not letting technology sort of he does by the nose, which to some extent it seems to be the case. Yeah, and once again, cities, right? People interacting with people, people sharing ideas, people sharing spaces, people sharing eye contact, right? It, it, it yes. makes such a difference. I think another one for your list, and I'm sure it was on there, is, is something like inspiration, beauty, um, meaning, purpose and identity. identity yeah I mean I think yeah very much 
Well, you know, I think the identity. Yeah, I like if it. you look at last century, if you look at last century, it was it was definitely a little bit about you know tabula rasa. Um, you basically you know it was the era of the star architect, and it's the era of these like crazy, fabulous forms sort of plumping down in the middle of your city, and you know you're being enamored by them. But it was definitely about sort of erasing what was there and starting over. And I don't think that that's what's working right now. I think people have really started to find that old and uh, unattractive. And I think first and foremost, what we need to do in order to improve our cities is it's an issue of good, responsible, and sensitive design that's rooted in its context. Mm-hmm. And you know, what we design can and should exist only in the location for which, for which it was designed. We have to mix the global with the local. And that's what people are yearning for. You know, the last century was about tabula rasa. This century is about conservation. It's about preservation. It's about adaptation. It's about building local identity and not erasing it. So it's a totally different attitude towards what, in my mind, constitutes good design. Just those very two basic simple words. I think the idea of what we want to see and how we want to live and the, the spaces that we want to live in need to have a much greater rootedness in their, in their place. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that we can use as a support is that we have several decades now um, of data on, you know, experiments that we've tried to house ourselves. Um, Corbusier has, has had some help in that. Well, I mean, that was definitely tricky, you know, but it came because of, you know, what we were just talking about, the pre and post industrial conundrum. It very much came out of a revolt against the way that cities were shaping up once you started shoehorning, uh, you know, bigger. Uh, more intensive uses on blocks that were laid out during the pre-industrial times. I think that it's, you know, getting back to human caring, which we brought up in the beginning, people care about themselves and they want to take, take care of themselves. There's that word again. And unfortunately, we live in an age where there's unprecedented volumes of uh, opportunities for us to distract and entertain ourselves. And it's so tempting to think, you know, if only I entertain and distract myself properly from birth to death, I'll have a happy life. The reality is that it doesn't work that way. You know, we really want to have some meaning and accomplishment, but it's almost like right now in our world, you can feel the juxtaposition of on one hand, um, people want to care. People lean into like, let's talk, take care of the planet, take care of each other. And the more they look at that, the more the immensity of the challenge that is over there kind of pushes them back to, you know what, I, I think I'll just watch Game of Thrones instead. For the record, this producer does not support or endorse the final season of that show. And I realize that this has very little to do with building science, but when you have a platform and a strong opinion, sometimes it needs to be heard. Okay, back to the programming. That's actually part of the exponential technological dislocations that 
we we refer to as one of the daunting challenges of our times. You know that technical technological dislocation isn't just about technology displacing people. It's about the dislocation of just us being in a society or being cut off from society and just you know it's you and your it's you and your iPad it's you and your yeah. iPhone and that's a that's a type of dislocation which is equally disrupt mm -hmm. equally disrupt, you know, disruptive. Yeah, and you can you can see it in in like tourist patterns. I mean, people come to cities as tourists, and they they go to the the old town, the dense, walkable, vibrant downtowns. They don't typically go out to the suburbs. And it's true, they most certainly don't. And you know, on that subject, um, what are you're right? We go to these old towns. We go to like these very distinct, identifiable places, neighborhoods in these old towns. And what's really sad, and I'm sort of moving to a different reason why our cities are not what they should be and what they used to be, is, you know, just what are the reasons we don't build like that today? Like, why, why don't we have neighborhoods that look like old towns? So I'll tell you some of my most beloved moments in some of, you know, my most beloved cities. You know, you look at the Spanish steppes in Rome. You know, you look at the beautiful old neighborhoods of Paris. Uh, you look at the, the crazy sloping streets of Athens or the steppes of Jaipur, you know, some of my favorite. Or even the sort of the arched bridges of Venice. None of them could be built today. Why not? And that's tragic. Well, Let's talk about that. Big question. I see three main reasons. I, I, I see three main reasons. First and foremost, mass production. You know, of steel members, of doors and windows, of elevators, of all kinds of building materials all over the world. You know, we need glass. It's coming from China. It's coming from like or Spain. It's coming from like a few select factories that globally supply most of these building blocks. And these cookie-cutter components end up creating cookie-cutter products. That is, buildings that look the same in any corner of the uh, any corner of the world. The banality is is mind-numbing. So that's one factor. Um, another factor I would say, and this is a big one and a slightly controversial one, is regulations. Regulations definitely steer us in a in a very specific direction. Cars taking over our public spaces, our regulations very much are now uh, designed, you know, addressing, uh, designed for cars. So specifically to protect us from the cars. So this means that all of our open spaces, our public spaces, they're designed with high street curbs, they're designed for loading zones, they're pedestrian free highways. Basically carving up the landscape and separating uh, people from cars in a way that, you know, people don't get hurt, but it's actually quite detrimental to sort of cities and the way that we live. And, you know, another one, take the, the lab of fire truck. Now these vehicles have really wide turning radius and it's led to a sea of asphalt on any new street. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of, you know, take the wheelchair which necessitates just flat landscapes with minimal slopes and elevators, which otherwise would not be needed. So I, I just want to say, though, I don't mean to say that we shouldn't have rules to enforce safety or equity, right, in the case uh -huh. of the wheelchair. We absolutely need codes. 
and we should have codes. And most of the codes get put into place because some disastrous event happened and they want to prevent yeah. that from happening again. And I'm all for that. But we do need them to keep up with exactly. the times, right? Because as technologies change, as as circumstances change, the codes need to sort of get revised and keep up with the times. Just briefly, getting back in, if, the, if I want to sound like Spock from Star Trek, um, thinking about uh, even gentrification, cer certainly uh, code changes in our downtown region here. So our office here is a half a mile from the, the river, kind of the Central Park. It's like a mile from the capital. And yet the river makes this natural barrier where there's density on one side and much lower density on our side of the river, the other side of the river. But... If you take anything in nature and you make a big hill, like you take a sand and you make a big pile of sand, it spreads out. You take a, a population and you pile it up downtown, it's going to naturally spread out. You take economic wealth, it's going to naturally spread out. So there's this kind of, um, it seems a little antiseptic and clinical to think of it that way, but there is the fact that we are natural beings living in a natural world and if you make a, uh, a peak somewhere there's going to be a gradient going back to the average it's just the way it is just to add a little bit to that i do think that there have to be some boundaries around that spillage right i don't think that that needs to be controlled because you know you don't want in the next 20 years or the next 30 years that we've just spilled out on the yeah. landscape we do have to preserve virgin areas we do have to preserve you know, cities can't be into one another. I think that's... Yeah, but getting back to your 30 units per acre from the beginning of the interview here, that we are at not MF3, multifamily three, we are at SF3 in this neighborhood, single family. Mm -hmm. And this land use code redevelopment, it, it intends to change that. In fact, some of my like direct neighbors are on a road that it's going from SF3 to, to some multifamily. And... And they really don't mm -hmm. like it. And they're all against it. And I mean, I can relate to yeah. that. They've been here for decades and decades. And at the same time, you know, I say, turn your head. Do you see that? That's the downtown skyline right there, like a half a mile away. <laughs> like this is going to happen. It's, it's inexorable. Um, and it's actually, as you were pointing out, in terms of energy use, population density is ultimately a good thing. So I'm not saying it should spill out indefinitely, but I am saying that you need to face some reality that like, look, you're a half a mile from downtown Austin and it's very low density neighborhood. That is unlikely to persist over time. Yes, I understand. Yes, that makes absolute sense. And to, you know, in these circumstances, I think, I think there's two approaches. There's a dual approach to handling this. It's it's a carrot and a stick approach mm -hmm. in my mind. So the carrot is the carrot is of course what they're leaving behind is not as good as where they're going, and that's all coming down to you know really thoughtful, sensitive design, you know, urban and architecture that that actually is appealing to people that once lived in single family homes. You just have to entice them and you have to do that by being good at what you're doing. Creating wonderful cities, creating wonderful neighborhoods, creating these multi-use, vibrant, walkable uh, neighborhoods. 
And the stick in my mind is, well, then let's not subsidize the way that they want to live, right? Then let them bear the true cost of the way they want to live. Um, there's a whole embodied energy sort of argument here and calculations that can be made. You know, their heat bills are going to be higher. Their their transportation and gas bills would be higher. All of all of the costs that are hidden in in the model that's not dense. Right. That's there are externalities not to that model. And they should be they those costs should not be borne by the taxpayers. Those costs should be borne directly by the people that want to live in that in that manner. And I think once both of those are put into place, people might actually have a slightly different attitude towards densification. It has to again come down to I always look at it in terms of enlightened self-interest. You have to show them why it's better for them. Yeah, I agree with you. It's an adaptive. It's an adaptive. It's an adaptive mm -hmm. challenge. You know, it, in my mind, this is not a technological. This is not a technological solution. You can't just take technology and put some systems in place and say, you know, hallelujah, we're done. This is where you actually have to change people's minds. You have to change the culture. You have to change what people value by showing them the alternative and showing them why the way that they're living is perhaps, could perhaps be enriched yeah. further. Yeah. It, as you say that, I'm, I'm nodding vehemently and also feeling some disheartenment because that's, how do you show them? How do you, how do you, it's not just show, it's like experience this, right? Um, I mean, I'm fortunate that I have family in London and I visit a lot and it's like, oh, this is fantastic, right? It's true. I mean, it's it's tough, but there are definitely examples, more and more examples that will start cropping up. And you know, there's got to be a whole public, like a community engagement process that that goes along with any kind of proposed yeah. change. And that's something that New York is actually very good at. That's something that we do on a regular yeah. basis. Um, whenever we're proposing something that's outside of an as of right scenario, anything that's different, that's going against what was initially zoned or, um, you know, the uses that were initially there. We go through an entire process with the city and the government, and it's about bringing all of the stakeholders, to, stakeholders together and building consensus. Yeah. And I think that's a very, very important process that needs to happen. It does. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, actually, there's, there's cultural stories that we tell that are out of date about um, getting back to nature, you know, and somehow the flight to the suburbs was about that, right? Getting out of these um, dirty, dense um, cities, you know, into the bucolic natural world. And in fact, it's not working. We're not really in the natural world. We're in the suburbs. It's true. I would say that there's very little natural, like, very little that's natural about the suburbs. In fact, there's nothing natural about suburbs. The whole thing is about yeah. us. So to me, the whole getting back to nature, I mean, I understand people were moving away from the, the density of urban sort of living, and that's because cities aren't being planned or weren't being planned in a way that made them livable. You know, whether it was, again, going back to like now building giant multifamily housing on 
plots that were meant for um, pre-industrial townhouses, or then in reaction to that, the towers in the park that were equally alienating and you know unsafe and didn't at all deliver on the promise that they came with. It's just been one thing after another why cities have not been able to live up to their promise. But I think yeah, and you changed. can understand why the public might be. Uh, you know, a bit reluctant to trust that the cities of the future are going to be um, better than the cities of the past and present. But I think there's a lot of very intelligent people, and I'm talking to one of them, and not just not just intelligent, but heartfelt intelligence, caring. And I want to lead you back to something you went through um, with a couple of quick comments. Or you mentioned three ways that you saw that that live that we live the way we do now. Speaking generally about cities, and you said mm -hmm. one was mass production, you know, of structural materials, doors, windows, global what? supply chains, cookie cutter. Just a quick comment on that. I know a lot of, um, I shouldn't say a lot. I know several architects that believe that, like AutoCAD was was a bad thing for architecture. That it led to this rectilinear, kind of one level removed from design, and that you know even BIM and ArchiCAD are another step away from that, and it's led to the it's that ArchiCAD and, and, you know, BIM software generally is leading to this cookie cutter approach. And I like, I appreciated being reminded that no, it's actually uh, on the underlying economics of the materials available in global supply chains. <laughs> That's probably at work there. I totally do not believe that ArchiCAD is responsible for the design. Wouldn't that be yeah. convenient though? I, uh, no, I that's utter that's utter nonsense. You know, you have to control your software. Your software doesn't control you, and you don't use the same software for every task. Anyone who's trying to design in Revit should come talk to me. Um, it's it's an insane, it's an act of insanity, and you know you're not going to get anything good out of it. It's not a design software. Stop designing in Revit. You know, use whatever tools yeah. you want to. Pencils and pens uh, still exist. In order to get Cardboard, chipboard, clay, foam, pencils, crayons. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Okay. Well, the second one, I, I definitely got a good reaction there, Adi. My second one was. Um, <laughs> I love it. So you talked about designing for cars, and here, here, you know, we've paved the planet nearly, and you know, the fire trucks dictate the size of intersections, and um, yet you also mentioned, and I think we all know that AVs are coming. Um, Cars are probably not like a durable, long-term uh, technology we're going to rely on to move ourselves around. So what happens after cars, right? What happens when we don't need gas stations anymore, which is probably even sooner? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a vision of that? I don't think cars are going to Oh, you don't? Maybe I mean, they might shift. No, well, you know, I hope they get shared. But I do, and I hope, you know, AV or no AV, autonomy or not autonomy, um, when you look at street equity issues, a car is a car. And uh, honestly, I don't think that they're going anywhere. I think they will always remain in some form or the other, although I feel and I hope that, um, you know, they will become more of a, a shared, a shared sort of owner transportation um, instead of being one or two people per car. So this actually reminds me very quickly, we had done this sort of street equity envisioning, sort of understanding uh, 
what requires, what, what's the most appropriate mode of transportation if we're looking at congestion issues. And if you look at cars, whether autonomous or not, you know, electric, whether it's electric or gas or autonomous, in a car, a person is occupying 55 square wow. feet of space as opposed to a bus, which is nine square feet, as opposed to a pedestrian, which is also about nine to 10, or a, a person on a bike, hmm. which is 15. So you look at these figures, nine, 10 to 15, and then you look at cars. Right. No, I like it. I actually want to digress on your digression just very briefly, because you know it's not cars I was saying are going to go away. <laughs> it's that the characteristic of cars mm-hmm. that has impacted the infrastructure of our cities, right? The size of intersections, but specifically parking garages. When you mm-hmm. say shared vehicles, right, there are, mm-hmm. like every building downtown is actually sitting on top of either an underground or above ground, large volume of parking, uh, a substantial component of which I hope in the relatively recent future will be unnecessary when we share our cars. It's a travesty. It's a total travesty. It's the, the bane of my life in particular, the amount of parking that I have to deal with on a daily basis. And you're absolutely right. Cars, the volume of cars on the street hopefully will go way down. Although, can I can I present a counterpoint Please. here, which is a very, very yeah. counterpoint? So, I recently came across a study conducted by Carlo Rotti, who's an architect. He leads the Sensible City Lab at MIT. And you know, he sort of refers to himself as a futurist because that's where he that's where he's focused, is how technology plays out and how sort of our our environment changes along with it. So while he was promoting the use of AVs and algorithms, you know, in short technology to drastically reduce the number of taxi cabs needed to meet uh, ridership demands in cities. There were two caveats in that study that sort of hit me in the face. One is that self-driving taxis could eventually lead to surreal gridlock. And this is like quote unquote, surreal gridlock. As passengers abandon public transport for AVs due to their unfair competitive advantage. They just become cheaper. You know, all of our all of our research and you know technological sort of effort is is so focused on AVs to the exclusion of other modes of transportation that eventually they will be the sort oh, of balance. And secondly, and secondly, he said that um, you know mobility sharing is only effective in dense urban areas. So you can't take this idea of mobility sharing, reduced cars on the street. You know people. Um, sort of changing the way that changing their relationship to the car and still continue with the suburban model. The two are completely mutually exclusive. So, yeah, I mean, AVs, there's a promise they hold, and, you know, I'm, I'm excited about that promise. You know, basically, what we're saying is that cars can safely mix with bikes and with pedestrians on the roads without having to be separated in the way that they are today and you know if that does become a new reality it's going to open up a whole host of possibilities in reshaping our urban landscape you know our streets could become purpose our streets could become shared and and i would love that i was literally hit by a car on my bicycle yesterday (laughs) he's okay i'm okay (laughs) well well, these things that can happen with an AV too. I mean, you you heard about 
accident. So I, I think the 80s have a long way to go. The fact that they don't mix well with uh, legacy vehicles is extremely mm -hmm. problematic. Like there's going to be a transition period. And how does that work? And what happens to you know if if certain neighborhoods become autonomous only, exclusively? What happens to people in their legacy vehicles? Then you have these like transfer stations yeah. outside those neighborhoods, and you know those are giant basically parking garages mm -hmm. where you have to park and then get into an AV. So there's all kinds of inefficiencies and you know issues that need to be ironed out. But yes, of course, the hope is coming back to your coming back to your initial question. The hope is that instead of 500 cars, you need right. 25 cars to serve the same needs. And that's starting to happen. I, I think at least people are starting to put enough attention into that problem that I feel the solution is now. And you know, whether, again, I feel like autonomy has nothing to do with it. It's basically understanding that you have a shared fleet and whether that shared fleet belongs to a certain neighborhood or a certain, you know, development in a neighborhood or whether that's across the city. The whole idea of sharing your mode of transportation, I think, is critical. How many people actually really use their cars on a daily basis? I guess, I'm, you know, in Austin it might be... It's quite a lot in Austin. To work yeah, but even even then, the the, yeah. the car represents an embodiment of energy and resources that I've forgotten the statistic, but I know it's it's sitting on the order of ninety percent or more of the time. It's just unused. Just sitting. the majority of the time, cars, trucks, they're not being used. They're just sitting. You know, they're they're stranded assets. They are embodied energy and embodied resources that are just tied up, waiting for us to. Uh, desire to use them. And that's one of the great reasons of sharing them. Absolutely. Like occupying space that could be much more productively used or, you know, like all of the resources that are spent on um, sort of accommodating these cars. And like you said, they're not actually being productive all the time. They're just sort of, you know, sitting there. And it's it's uh, it's a bane. It's the bane of everyone's life. And it's, it's a cultural shift that needs to happen. But of course, you can't take away people's cars without providing right. them with an alternative. And it brings me back to you've got to densify. You've got to densify enough to be able to support public transportation because that is really what will make our city yeah. sustainable. Yeah. Um, you gotta have, you got to have public means of transportation. you got to have the ability to walk. you know, you got to make mixed-use neighborhoods where you're not necessarily driving two hours or even an hour to get to your work where hopefully you live and work in a neighborhood uh, that's walkable uh, where you, if you want a carton of milk you don't have to get into your car you go to the grocery store and that's walkable where if you want to go to the movies you walk 15 minutes and there's a theater you want to go to the park you walk there and you know this doesn't mean that people start to live in their little 15 minute walking radius you know people go outside whenever they want to for special reasons, but that your daily mm -hmm. needs can be met yeah. within that world. Yeah, that I, I can also hear that, that I, mean, I know many people um, that would say that their, their vehicle, even their commute, is their, their kind of oasis in their day, right? The temperature, the sound, everything, that, the, what they're exposed to as far as music, everything can be just what they want. And they think it's this utopia, but 
unaware all the time of how isolating it is, how lonely it can make you. Um, it's subtle. And from what I've heard, uh, stress inducing. You know, there have again been studies that say commuting, commuting for more than half an hour one way, you know, once a day is actually, I can't remember the figure, but it was, it was yeah. cause for stress. But there was like so much more stress yeah. in people that commuted far on a regular basis. So I, I don't think that, you know, people might want to make the best of what they have. And so they're trying to create the sort of calm, meditative uh, experience out of one that could potentially be horrible. But, you know, what if they took that same time and actually meditate and or right. listen to music or, or read a book yeah. uh-huh. or being in a car? Wouldn't that be better? That yeah. would be better. I love it. Okay, I want to bring you back, and then I think we're going to wrap up here. We really definitely are getting toward that time. I recall we were, you had said there were three main reasons that we live the way we do, and I know I heard mass production is one, regulation is codes, and codes is two. Do you recall the third? Did we cover it? We didn't, and I should, I should tell you. The third reason is actually, it's actually a psychological one. It's the fear of difference. And it's builders and financiers, people that finance architectural and you know, other large scale developments are highly risk averse. Uh, they want something that's tried and tested and they're basically unwilling to get behind new ideas because you know, they want guaranteed returns. So that I think is a very, very important third reason for why our cities yeah. Is there any way to, to end the cycle of turning, you know, built space into an ATM or, you know, a bank? <laughs> Is there any way forward, Abra? I, I think there has to be, right? I mean, that's, we that's wouldn't exist if there wasn't. That's, that's what we do. You know, that's what we do. That's what we yeah. want to do on a daily basis. And like I said, you know, firstly, it's just about good, responsible, sensitive design. It's about, you know, understanding what people are yearning for and it's not what used to, you know, it's not the same old, same old, it's not the same old blue glass building plopped down across the across the globe or, you know, the same sort of multifamily housing. Uh, it really has to feel original. It has to feel, it has to feel different. It has to be distinctive enough. It has to be attractive enough. And then secondly, I do think that, you know, technology, while we can say it's been part of the problem, you know, especially when it comes to cars and the way that cars have sort of displaced people, uh, I think technology needs to be part of the solution. And that, you know, we have to broaden our focus to issues other than autonomy. You know, once, let's, let's look at the fire truck issue, for instance. You know, we're designing this antiquated ladder truck, this antiquated fire truck. What if technology invested in um, firefighting drones? You know, what if we could change the way that we fought fires? Robots and drones are already being used in basic rescue activities. So this isn't such a stretch. Or, you know, the the other example that I brought up was the wheelchair. And again, not knocking the wheelchair. Everyone understands it's important. But it's the same wheelchair that we've been seeing for the most part for, I don't know, decades, more and more. Um, but we know that there was this one wheelchair called the Chuck Close wheelchair. I don't know if you guys have come across yeah, that. Yeah, I've seen a good time I'll put a picture of that in the show notes. Yeah, so 
obviously it's it's expensive, but can we make it affordable? Isn't that worth worthy of some effort and some like you know research dollars? Um, you know, just just changing a few of these things, I think, could drastically change the way we design in those cities. And you know, not only would we end up saving resources, because I mean, think about all of the think about all of the asphalt. Think about all of the additional ramps and you know elevators and lifts that we have to put into place. That's all costing a lot of money. So not only would we change the way that you know we'd end up saving resources, we would end up with the means to I think design magnificent cities. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's not like we're cost diverse as a society. I mean, look at the computers we all carry in our pockets. Those aren't cheap. I think getting technological solutions to these issues would end up costing us less than what they're costing us today. I, I would like to think so. So, Rushi, it's been an absolute pleasure, an absolute delight sharing some ideas with you today. Do you have any final thoughts, final comments? So, yeah, I would say that as architects and as designers and planners, we have to assume and take on the, the share of responsibility in the problems that we are facing today. And that we have to, we have the responsibility to direct design and decisions as we work with our communities, as we work with our um, clients and owners and as we work with the city agencies to yeah. show them alternatives, to not just do the same thing. And you know, it, takes, it takes courage, uh, it obviously takes a lot of creativity, it takes having a much wider cone of vision in general. So as an architect, you do more than just design buildings and the details and the sort of, you know, the construction documents. We are designing our cities. And every act of, you know, sort of architecture is also an act of urbanism, and it affects the lives of not just the people in that neighborhood, but in some ways, you know, the entire city. And I think, you know, that's what we do here. You know, we we build a practice to attempt to address the pressing issues of our era, and it's something that I feel everyone should sort of take a part. Wow, I love it. I agree. And I think uh, that's that's so heartfelt and so important. It's also a tiny bit heavy. I want to remind us all that wh what you said earlier, where we are is not as good right now as where we are going. And that because of firms like you and people like, firms like yours and people like you, we're moving toward creating wonderful cities, vibrant, walkable neighborhoods, right? So something to look forward to. Okay. Well, so thank you so much for your time, Rishi, and, and thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. It's been an honor.